You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. In the beginning, the end. So where to start? This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. Welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going deep down the quantum rabbit hole with Nassim Harriman, one of those rare people who really understands quantum physics and relativity and have been studying the nature of the universe since his childhood. In this recent presentation, Nassim Haramein talks about the latest discoveries of the inner workings of our holographic fractal universe. We get into this world and we just go about our business and there's not many people that kind of wonder, wait a minute, what is this experience I'm having, right? They're like, how did I get here? Why am I able to know I'm even here? You know, how does self-awareness occur? You know, it's kind of crazy. It, it would be like if I grabbed you right now and I brought you to another planet and I plopped you there and there was no moment that you would kind of wonder how you got there. You're just like, oh, okay, so and just keep going, right? <laughs> and so from very young, I was like, why aren't people kind of wondering, what is this thing, right? Like, how did I get, what is this experience I'm having, right? Who am I? How did I get here? And it's like we get so busy and all this stuff. And then in advanced physics, in the old days, when I was presenting in physics conference like 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 
if you said the C word, you were like so out of there, like forget it. I mean, it was the worst word you could ever, I mean, you could swear in physics conference. I got mooned one time, you know, <laughs> literally in front of the cameras and everything. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a black hole. <laughs> Just made my point. <laughs> And if you said the C word, like, oh my God, but what is consciousness? And, and so now it's like a reverse phenomenon. There's all these physicists and philosophers that are in institution that are talking about how consciousness is fundamental and, you know, quantum mechanics predicts the event of an observer and all this. And in many cases, that stuff really kind of repels me. And the reason why it repels me is because, first of all, typically it's based on an erroneous interpretation of quantum physics. Okay, and, and that's really important to know. Like, uh, the idea that the double slit experiment predicts consciousness is completely erroneous. It doesn't at all, at all, like not even close, right? The fact that when a measurement is done, there's a change to the event. If you're strict, when you look at the mathematics, the mathematics doesn't say anything about consciousness. It just says measurements, like there's a change in the state, and the outcome is unknown. It's like infinite amount of probabilities. It doesn't predict that something specific is going to happen. It predicts that there's an infinite amount of probability of the waveform collapsing into some state, right? So the idea that that predicts consciousness is, is actually incorrect. And so I'm sorry, like to break the bubble, but that's just wrong, straight up. And so, and this is why the mainstream is not going along with it. So we need a formal understanding of what actually is this thing that's called consciousness. And there's a lot of evidence that the double state experiment and the Copenhagen interpretation and all this stuff was actually misinterpreted. You can, you can get the same results with a back of fluids and little beads on it and shoot them at slits and get all the same result as the double state experiment with fluid dynamics. So what is that telling you? It's telling you that there's some kind of a field that's oscillating and that the little beads that we call particles are interacting with this oscillation, right? So, so it's a completely different view of quantum mechanics that's emerging and it's called a pilot wave theory. And actually when the double slit experiment was interpreted in the Copenhagen interpretation, you know, de Bouglier tried to explain to Einstein and Planck and Bohr that there was another interpretation either than like everything is spooky and everything is like magical and you know, you can have particles and waves at the same time and don't try to visualize it, it's just math and that like you could do all this with fluid dynamics, but they didn't listen. So it might be a little bit jarring, you know, but, but I'm gonna develop something for you that's like actually much, much better because it's just not good enough to say like people have this intuition, it's all consciousness. And you know, it's like, well, okay, I can feel that. But what does that mean? What do you mean by consciousness? You know, I see actually these very advanced physics papers and, you know, philosophy theory that talks about how like, you know, consciousness is fundamental. It's, you know, at the base of everything and all this stuff. But if you don't define what consciousness is, 
you might as well say God is at the base of everything. You know, you got another religion going. It's not grounded in some mechanism that you can explain what the heck that is, right? So it's important because, like, if we actually understand the source of consciousness, like, we get to, like, the bottom of, like, how we actually came to be here and how the world comes together. If it's at the root of creation, then if we get this right, like, we're going to kick some serious butt. Like, I mean, it's... So let's try to get it right. And so this is work in progress, of course. So this is the paper we published. I'm going to have my lovely assistant reading today because I'm extremely dyslexic and I don't see so well. So she's going to read for me. Victoria, go ahead. The recent elucidation of the space-time architecture of the proton as Planck-scale quantum vacuum fluctuations is evaluated under the Maldensina Susskind ER EPR correspondence theorem that equates wormholes with quantum entanglement. ER equals EPR. Okay, you guys all got this, right? It's actually really simple, but I will get through this, through this presentation. I, what it just said there is actually fundamental. And so I'll get through this in this presentation. Just don't panic, don't run out the door, it's okay. Go ahead. We suggest that entanglement of macromolecular assemblies of the living cell may produce Planckian wormhole connections with multiple space-time coordinates and that this wormhole entanglement may function in the memory capacity of the biological entity. So, we published that. <laughs> um, it, it actually, if you read this and concentrate on it, it's profound what it's saying if, if you integrate it. And we'll explain through the presentation what it means. Go ahead. Furthermore, the recursive information encoding feedback processes of the quantum space-time wormhole network space memory, engenders memory and learning in physical systems across scales in the universe, resulting in the evolutionary tendencies towards higher levels of ordering and complexity, foundational to consciousness and self-awareness. At the universal scale, this results in a process of biological cosmogenesis. Thank you. <laughs> this, uh, so the English translation. Basically, in this last part, what we're saying is that Consciousness is a field of information and that all scales are interacting with it. So you don't have, you know, all of a sudden, like, not conscious and then all of a sudden conscious out of nowhere, right? It's actually present at all scale and, the, and, and that's why the complexity gets higher and higher because the feedback mechanism of information gets more and more you know, refine and higher level of complexity and eventually you have something that can look back at itself and go, I am. And that's like an incredible miracle of creation right there, right? And so, if anything I can convey to you during this talk today is the incredible, mind-blowing, crazy miracle that you are. Sometimes crazy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that this miracle that you are is not isolated. It's, it's an incredible, incredible thing. So, keep going. When we say so, consciousness... All right, so I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. 
Maybe you should come up here and do this talk. I can sit down. Um, when we say consciousness, what do we mean? This is really important. Consciousness is the medium through which we experience reality, right? So more technically, consciousness is self-awareness naturally arising within any sufficiently intricate information feedback network so that it's a, a continuous phenomenon across scale. So here, you know, there's two options. And option number one has been what typically has been described as consciousness in, in the mainstream scientific community. You want to read that? Consciousness is an emergent characteristic of neuronal activity of the central nervous system of complex animals and evolved as a vehicle by which an external reality is interpreted, but not ever directly experienced. So this is, this is the mainstream interpretation of consciousness. Typically, it's thought to be, you know, an epiphenomena of the biological entity, you know, the chemical change and all the activity in the brain and so on and in the nervous system. And it has, it's basically thought to be like an illusion, you know, meaning that it's just some kind of movie that's running in your head. But like it's not related to reality in any way, shape or form, either than some chemicals are happening in your brain, right? And that's why in psychology or in modern psychology and psychiatry, the idea is that if there's a deficiency in chemical, you just give the chemical to the person and they should be fine, right? So just give them chemicals if they don't feel so happy and they should be just as happy as everybody else because now they have the right chemical where the source of the imbalance may not be at the biological level, right? And at the biological level may be just expressing a different state of affair that is not directly available because of the way we interpret what is actually going on, thinking that the brain is a thing. And you know, this thing with the brain, you guys, oh my God, like, oh, uh, we'll talk about it later on, but like, this obsession with the brain is like, you know, some people are born with like almost no brain or they have certain diseases that eventually like shrink their brain and some have been found like it happens like people get in a car accident, they get an MRI and they go, oh, sir, you had no brain, you know, it's like, oh, what <laughs> happened? <laughs> Thought it felt weird. <laughs> but they, these people function absolutely normally and so like how are they doing this it's just water up there well maybe instead of paying so much attention to like the you know 10 percent which is the brain and not paying attention to like the 90 percent which is the water and the water uh, the fluid dynamics maybe that's the part we should pay more attention to right so what's the second interpretation that could be applied Awareness is a natural characteristic inherent to and arising concordantly with the fundamental information processes of the universe. Since information is fundamental to space-time and all physical attributes therein, a consequence of modern physics, no awareness equals no experiential reality. So basically, the second interpretation is that actually awareness, information in the structure of space-time is present everywhere. And the manifestation of that awareness as a human being having self-awareness is like a consequence 
of the fundamental structure of the universe, the way the universe works, the way reality works. It's not like some kind of fluke that happened that like, oh, some weird animal all of a sudden became self-aware and we call them humans. So this is the interpretation that we're going to go with. Awareness is a natural and indelible characteristic inherent to and arising concordantly with the fundamental information processes of the universe. Is consciousness more than simply an illusionary mechanism emergent within the animal brain for interpreting an external world? For example, no feedback, feed-forward processes? Or instead, is it to one extent or another an active component of the mechanisms of nature, whereby its indelible involvement in the mechanisms of the natural world are key to its existence in the animal mind? So basically, what we are saying is that if information is present, then the information is actually the source of the material world. But as information you know, moves through the source of the material world, the end result is what we call self-awareness or consciousness. But how is that happening? Let's see what unified physics can elucidate about that. And this is where I get more comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I actually, you know, I really enjoy philosophy and, you know, consciousness studies is something that I started with. I was 10 years old. I would sit in front of the theater right beside my house and I would look at people coming out. And in my head, I would like classify people in kind of like species. <laughs> I don't say this often, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. But I would, and the way they walk, the way they talk to each other as they walked out the theater, you know, and the way they behave, I was like seeing like branches of classification of, you know, this is this kind of person, this is this kind of person, this person probably thinks very much this way, and, and I could see like patterns, right? Patterns everywhere. And to me, there was a unifying principle that must have been emerging these patterns out of the, you know, what I observed in nature was that it didn't seem random. It didn't seem like it was just like a mishmash of all kinds of stuff. It looked like there was pattern. And these patterns, I thought, must be unified, meaning it must be some fundamental principle that was producing all these patterns in nature. It wasn't just randomly kind of like chaotic universe, right? But then when I was taught physics and, you know, even geometry, I realized that that was not the prevalent thought on this planet, like that people thought that the universe is completely random. And all quantum theory is based on the idea that physics and of the universe is completely random like and, and and relativity as well and so there's actually no place in all of our physical theory currently that a human being forget the human being just a microbe could come to exist like the complexity is way too high you know just like even just like the base structure of dna like would never emerge in 13 0.7 billion years, it wouldn't be anywhere close to enough time for random function to produce something that complex. So it's like, to me, there must have been a unifying, so I was looking for that. And when I learned physics, I was like, 
Well, actually, you know, no, it's not unified because our physics are not unified. So if our physics are not unified, then the universe couldn't be unified, right? And so we have physics for the big and we have physics for the small. We have cosmology, which is Einstein field equations that describe gravity and you know, the interaction of large bodies. And we have quantum physics, which is like molecules down, like atoms, subatomic particles, and all this stuff. And the two theories don't agree with each other. One says that space-time is smooth and very fluid, which is cosmology, and the other one says that it's, it's all quantized, very specific quantized discrete quantities. And so the two don't agree at all. And so we have this big chasm between the two. And until the day he died, Einstein tried to resolve this chasm. Like literally hours before his death, he was working on these equations, trying to resolve it. And I think that Einstein would have resolved it really quick if he had modern tools to and, and observation that we have today to resolve it. But when I used to go to physics conference 20 years ago, the, the other big taboo thing, when people would ask me, first of all, at first they thought I was like the guy that brought coffee and stuff like that because, you know, I was so young. They were all in their 70s and 80s and, you know, I was like, they're like, who's this guy? Can you get me a coffee, honey? And I'm like, oh yeah, sure, you know. But then eventually they would see me on the roster like I was going to present. They're like, oh, the coffee boy is going to present. <laughs> and then, you know, they would ask me, so what are you working on in all this? And I would say, I'm working on unified physics. And that was the other taboo, you know. They'd look at me like, dude, if Einstein didn't figure it out, you know. <laughs> But that's the thing, Einstein didn't have some of the modern observation we have and some of the model tools we have. And it was really weird to me at the time because physicists would argue with me that we didn't need a unified field theory because we were doing really good with big stuff and small stuff and we just had two theories for each one of them. I'm like, okay, wait a minute, big stuff is made out of small stuff. <laughs> So, you think they should be two physics? I think they should be one, right? So I, I start to dig into it and try to figure it out, you know, like if you shrink the stuff down, if you dig into the stuff from galaxies and quasar, you get stellar objects on that side, atoms on the other, and, you know, then you get to black holes, stellar black holes and galactic centers and stuff, and then nuclear of atoms. I'm just going quick, but this took me years. And I'm thinking, what is the unifying? I was hoping to find a unifying crossover. Like, there must be somewhere where everybody kind of like join and emerge from it. And so I realized when I got to black holes that there was something really significant there. Because when you get to black holes in relativistic equation, the equation tells you that the center, the point at the center of the black hole is like a point of infinite density, a point of infinite energy, a singularity. And you know, the word singularity means singular. Uh, you know, means one, right? This is kind of like obvious, you know? 
But because you see, imagine curvature, right? Einstein said space-time is curved. That's what gravity is. And so like a ball on a trampoline would curve the surface of a trampoline and like another ball would appear to be attracted. That's basically what Einstein described. Well, when you have a singularity, imagine the point goes to infinity. So the curve is asymptotic to infinity. Like it doesn't... And so that would mean that anything in the universe is on the curve of that singularity, right? So it's like, oh, you know, it'd be unified. So like I started to think, what if everything is a singularity? What if like space-time is actually already curved to infinity in every point? Like, what if it's like just wormholes riddled everywhere and... And the network of information wormholes through the whole thing is what we call reality. It's like the information moving through the network. And we're kind of like an emergent characteristic of that network. Like, I kind of just blew the whole thing, but... You guys see that? And so I thought, okay, so maybe the key is singularity. And I start to study how singularity is described in physics. And I realized that there was infinity on the Einstein's equation side, but there was infinity as well on the quantum side, because when you looked into the atom, you found that the space inside the atom was singularized, meaning it had infinite amount of energy, infinite amount of quantum fluctuation, of electromagnetic fluctuation. So the two had singularities. And in both cases, the two were renormalized using the Planck length. The two were renormalized at a very specific, meaning that the singularity would go to Planck length, 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. At that point, it was unified. And it's crazy to think that, I mean, our current theory of the Big Bang says that everything came out of a point that small, 13.7 billion years ago, that at that point, in that point, everything was unified. But when did it get deunified? Because, you know, like, why do we think? Because it's a part more, from our perspective, that it's not unified, right? If it's wormhole riddle, it would be uh, meaning space-time can be curved everywhere Are you guys following me or yeah okay so i start to think I, because if this is true then you should be able to like put information over here and get it to pop out over there on the other side of the universe right you should be able to do that no problem if you know the network if you link into that network dude you're you're done right like forget linear motion you just quantum leap wherever you want to go right and so, if you figure it out, I mean, my ultimate goal was to be out of here, remember? Because when I was a kid, I was like, this is a very strange planet. And so, I started to think, okay, so what is the unifying characteristic then? The unifying characteristic would be the thing that connects all the things. So, you got things, and then you got no things, right? So, the, the no thing, that the space then must be something. It must be connecting everything. So if, if you're looking for the things that connects everything that's present everywhere, well, space is the key, right? We spend all our time looking at the thing and not looking at the no thing. And so because the thing is, is that the thing <laughs> is actually made of 99.999999% 
space, nothing, right? So the space, for instance, in atoms, right, is 99.9999999%. It's actually not nothing, but it actually could be the source of the little electromagnetic thing we call the atom. So this is really an important concept to understand. When we talk about subatomic particles in physics, people visualize billiard balls. And it's got nothing to do with billiard balls. It's not billiard balls at all. It's not little beady things flying around and bumping into each other. It, it really isn't. There's a lot of space between things. If you're just joining us or wondering, WTF, we're listening to Nassim Haramein here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. You know, if you take the densest atom on the planet, you know, if you take carbon like a diamond, and you take one of these atoms in that molecule and grow it to an orange, the other orange in the same molecule is two football fields away. That's how much space there is in your world. You know, spiritual people say, oh man, it's so dense down here. <laughs> like 99.999% space. <laughs> you see, nothing has ever actually, I mean, this could be disheartening for your partner, but nothing has ever touched anything, <laughs> ever. <laughs> that doesn't happen. Things don't touch. These little beady things we call protons or neutrons or electrons or so on, they're just electromagnetic fluctuation of the space itself. So for instance, the radius of the proton is called the charge radius of the proton. Why? Why do they say the charge radius of the proton? Because all you can say is that at that radius, there's a charge, right? There's a little higher density charge, electrostatic charge than over there. And we call that a little particle. But there's all the space, and so we spend most of our time studying the point zero 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 one of a percent and ignoring the 99.9999. And so what about the space? I started to think maybe it's the space that creates reality, not reality that defines the space, right? Maybe... The atom is just a function of the space itself, right? Maybe it's just like if you have a tub full of water and you make a little vortex in it by pulling the plug, you see a vortex there, and it seems like there's something there, but it's just a function of the water spinning in that region of the space, right? So imagine maybe space is not empty but full. Well, I'm not the only one that came up with that. Some of the greatest thinkers on the planet tried to tell us about this. For instance, John Archibald Wheeler. Here you can see Wheeler 
he's right there, you know, hanging out with Einstein. I, I love the way Einstein walk, you know, he's this uh, bubbly, you know, kind of guy. No point is more central than this, that empty space is not empty. It is the seat of some of the most violent physics, right? Very high energy levels are present in the space. Space is not empty, it's full. The universe is not separate from this cosmic sea of energy. Physical objects are not in space, but these objects are spatially extended, right? Physical objects are not in space, but they're spatially extended. So an object is an extension of the space, right? In this way, the concept empty space loses its meaning. There's no such thing. You know, people like Einstein, people like Wheeler and Baum and all these guys, they don't get to make just nice, like, after a cup of tea, philosophical statements like that. <laughs> they, they don't. They, if they're making these statements, it's because they had some physical base to, you know, support these concepts that they were, they were throwing at the world. And the reason why they came to conclude these things is because their quantum field theory, so when quantum mechanics was discovered, basically, did you all know that quantum physics started with a light bulb? Did you know that? No. Well, a contingency of light bulb industry companies were trying to make better light bulbs because at the time the light bulbs didn't last very long. And they hired the best physicist on the planet, Max Planck, to figure out how they could get the filament of the light bulb to last longer. And so Planck went at it. He started to write classical mechanics, math, to try to describe the radiation, right, the thermal emission, the energy coming off the little element in the light bulb. And when he did that, the math didn't add up, meaning it predicted there would be an infinite amount of ultraviolet energy coming off the light bulb. And, you know, in laboratory, that's not what they were measuring. So they knew there was a problem with the equation, and he couldn't figure it out. But he knew that every time he put this little fudge factor in the equation, it would come out just right. And so he published that, but he was really unhappy with it. He was like, this is really bad physics, but, you know, I, I can't find anything else, so I'm doing this. And so he published this, and then Einstein realized, wait, you know, these, these may be the little photons, they eventually called them photons, the little packets of energy. The reason Planck didn't think it was right is because it was counterintuitive. It basically, the equation said that basically the heat that was coming off the element was coming off in little packets of energy, little eventually quanta as they were called. And it didn't seem right because when you boil water, it didn't seem like it, it's going in like little increments. It seems like it's smooth, right? So, but the increments are so small, we don't see them, right? So this eventually became the Planck constant. Bohr eventually realized that you could take, you could show that like a little quanta of energy was absorbed by the electron and then the electron would jump exactly by quantize, you know, from one electron orbit to the other and the Bohr atom was born and all this and everybody got on the quantum thing, right? The universe is quantized, it's little discrete packets. 
You guys are following me? Except that when they tried to apply that to the whole electromagnetic field, to the structure of, you know, because it's in your space right now, they had to quantize the whole thing, the whole space, and the quanta has got smaller and smaller, the frequency, the waveform got smaller and smaller and smaller of the quanta. They couldn't find the end of it, and it ended up telling them in quantum field theory that the space was full of energy, like infinitely full of energy, that every point in space was a singularity. And, you know, if it was me, I would have been like, yeah, we found it, right? Then they were like, dude, we got to get rid of this. <laughs> this has got to be wrong, right? And so there was like this, you know, we got to find a solution to this. But the solution is that they cut it off at the Planck length because like the Qantas could go to only a certain waveform where the, the photon is going through itself, you know, so it's, it's the smallest wavelength possible is the Planck length. So they, they say, okay, well, each point in space has all this energy, but it, it stops at the Planck length. So it's not infinite, but it was still a large number. So it was kind of like part of a, of a, you know, a conclusion or a consequence of quantum theory that they couldn't get rid of. Quantum theory was telling them space is full of energy. And you might say, it seems empty to me. What are you talking about? What do you mean it's full of energy? Because this, that's the thing. It's happening at level of perception that, you know, maybe the psychics in the room get, but like in general, you don't literally experience it. Why? Because, you know, like the room right now is full of electromagnetic wave, like microwave and ultraviolet and infrared and all this stuff is happening in the room. You're not directly, generally experiencing it, but it's still there. Like if you have a radio set and you turn the crystal in the radio set just to the right frequency, boom, you know, all of a sudden you hear the announcer talking in there. Well, the band that's playing from your radio set is not in the radio. It's just not in there. Looking for consciousness in the brain is like looking for the band in the radio. And so basically, you got all these waves going on, like radio waves and all this stuff all around you right now. But imagine that there's these waves that are like a way higher frequency, like way, way, way higher frequency, way, way shorter wavelength than even an atom, like billions of times smaller than an atom that is permeating everything, you would have no clue it's there, right? You wouldn't know, actually, if that is actually the source of the radio set, like if your body is the antenna and this is the source, the only evidence you would have that it's there is the fact that you're conscious, because you're tuned into it, right? You see what I'm saying? And the fact that you can influence it, right, is another thing. You know, you can make gravitational waves, make some of these puppies. So, you know, from these conclusions, I'm just going through the history a little bit. You know, Wheeler eventually came to conclude, like, when you make the calculation on, like, how densely energetic the vacuum is, it's not like small numbers. You're talking like universal size energy level, 
right? And so he started to describe space-time. When he calculated this, he said, oh my God, space-time is in small enough region should not be merely bumpy, not merely erratic in curvature. It should fractionate in ever-changing multiple connected geometry. For the very small and the very quick, wormholes should be as much as part of the landscape as those dancing virtual particles, you know, that you find at the electron cloud. So basically, you're saying that space-time at the very small level is riddled with wormholes, right? And basically, wormholes are like curvature in space-time that are so high that it creates a link between things at a distance that you can traverse with almost zero time because the curvature is so high, right? So it's instantaneous. So imagine space-time being curved at that level everywhere around you and in you because remember you're made out of these atoms and these atoms are, so you're 99.9999999% space. So the thing you call you is actually just point zero 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 one of what is there. So how much energy is in your space? Who are you when you're the space of you, right? Who is that person that's your space, right? And so basically I started to think that way. And then recently they observed in quantum mechanics that if you have two particles at a distance from each other, if they came out of the same point, so if, if you had an atom with a photon and it emits two photons, these photons are entangled. And that means that if I take this photon over here and I change its polarization angle, this guy over here changed instantaneously, even if it's on the other side of the universe. And they've tested that. They've tested that over very long distance and it's very accurate. They've tested it over distances in which the information at the speed of light wouldn't have had time to go from that particle to that particle. And it still changes instantaneously. So there's no lag time. So, or very little, if there is. But when that was discovered in quantum theory, it wasn't directly associated with wormholes. Why? Because wormholes were a consequence of Einstein field equation and quantum theory is quantum theory and the two don't talk to each other. So only recently some of the best physicists have started to realize maybe ER equals EPR which you know ER is Einstein-Rosen bridges which is the wormhole equations and EPR is Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen which is the entanglement equation. So they're starting to say Oh my God, maybe particles are connected through wormholes, micro wormholes in the structure of space. And so, you know, we can see that everything seems to have come out of one point. Remember the statement about entanglement? If something comes out of one thing, it's entangled. That would mean every atom is entangled. So this entanglement is becoming more and more popular because it resolves a lot of things in physics and I haven't publicized it yet but this is one of the most prominent physicists on the planet that was giving a conference at Stanford and, and was asked what um, he was talking about 
ERA equals EPR. And he was talking about how, you know, galactic wormholes can be entangled because the particles they emit, the little virtual particles they emit, can fall into another black hole. And then that makes an entangled link between these black holes. And one of the students, probably that had studied my work, asked this question, do you mean that subatomic particles are black holes? And, you know, he goes, yes, uh, well, you know, uh, there is no sharp division between black holes and subatomic particles is what he came up with. So, you know, it's been a long journey, but it's getting there. So how small is this little entity we call a Planck oscillator? Because these little things that are floating in the space that connects with you, they are really small. And so to try to give you an idea of scale is really hard. So I use this example. We have very, very dedicated people at the Residence Project. You know, we were at the Vatican and this is the dome of the Vatican. It's about 42 meters and I asked Susan to climb on top there and you know hang out so I could have a sense of scale there so Susan and she Susan is made out of 100 trillion cells so are you right so you know depending on what you ate for breakfast there is about a hundred trillion cell in your body that's an incredible thing a hundred trillion cell they're all happy hopefully and they are duplicating like an incredible rate. There's billions of chemical change in your body every second for you to continue to be alive, right? There's this incredible dance that's happening, highly coordinated, because if there is confusion at any time for a few seconds, there is serious discomfort that follows, if not death, you know? like. If any confusion happens, like, you know, the cell starts getting confused about the no cells, you know, starting to do a toe cell and, and the toe cells starting to do a no cell. In a very short amount of time, there will be discomfort in your shoes, right? And there is nothing in current biological theory that explain how cells know what to divide into. And to continue to do the right thing and to coordinate all the events and all this is thought to happen under random function. And it's like, it doesn't seem random to me. Because we all seem to have livers and we all seem to have kidneys. And it's all kind of like happening in an amazing coordinated way. So now, if you integrate in your meditation right now that you have a hundred trillion cells in you, right? So when you say I'm one person, you're actually a hundred trillion things, right? Well, then every one of those cells is made out of a hundred trillion atoms approximately. So it's a hundred trillion by a hundred trillion. And now you're at the atomic level of your existence, you know, which is like you're down the rabbit hole quite far already, right? And every one of those atoms has a little proton in the middle. And that little proton is teeny compared to the electron cloud. So if that's the electron cloud of a hydrogen atom, then the little proton in the middle is the head of a pin in the middle of the dome of the Vatican. Okay? That's the proton. So imagine like there's a hundred trillion atoms per cell. So if you think of the proton, it's it's really small, right? It's a very, very teeny entity. Okay, you guys follow me? Okay, so now 
If I made a Planck oscillator the size of a grain of sand, then if the Planck is the same, like this is the sun, that's the, the earth going by. It's like a little teeny thing compared to the sun. A grain of sand on the earth is teeny, right? So if a Planck became a grain of sand, then how big would be that little teeny proton relative to the grain of sand? Well, that proton would be the distance between our sun and approximately Alpha Centauri. So you're talking 40 trillion kilometer diameter. That would be the size of the proton if the Planck was a grain of sand. So you're not experiencing the Planck's directly. You know, you're just like, you know, your nervous system is, yeah. You know, it's just not happening. I mean, your consciousness might be a consequence of it, but that's another story. So basically, what I'm saying to you is, imagine if you have that many Planck's and you try to calculate how, I mean, they're so small, if you have that many in a centimeter cube of space, how much energy is there in a centimeter cube of space? Well, there's 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube, because they're so teeny, right? But they're energetic because they're little teeny, like, you know, kind of things. So they are not trivial in terms of, like, the density of this is 10 to the 93. So everybody understand exponent 10 to the 93 is 10 with, like, 93 zeros? That is a lot, right? You probably notice in your bank account when you add zeros, things, you know, improve exponentially. Right? So if you have like four zeros, it's good. If you have five, it's, ah, you know, if you have six, it's like, okay, now we're talking, you know, now you have seven. Imagine you have like 93 zeros, like, that's a lot. If you actually took all the stars in the universe, all the matter we see in the universe, and squashed it into a centimeter cube of space, you'd have 10 to the 55 grams per centimeter cube. You would still missing. 39 zeros to get to the density of the vacuum that makes up your existence right now. Okay? So it is dance around here. <laughs> but that is actually what you call empty space. Is that crazy or what? Huh? And what you call the material world is just a little fluctuation of that incredible density of space. It's just a little bit of, of energy that's emanating from that structure of the space itself. So if you understand that, then you, if you understand the mechanics of that, then you can actually take space and make matter, right? You can extract energy like... 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cube in a centimeter cube of space. Like, that means that if I extracted one billionth of a billionth of a percent of that energy in a centimeter cube of space, I could run the planet for thousands of years. And like, meanwhile, we've got all these people on this planet going around like, we don't have enough energy. We gotta like, go and invade these countries and get their oil and you know. Really? And this has been known for almost a hundred years. So why is physicists not concentrating on that? Because the number is so huge. Remember when they saw that the vacuum was infinitely dense, they like 
freaked out and like, okay, we got to get rid of that. Well, basically they did. They just put it in a closet and they said, okay, don't teach that to the students. Just tell them to plug that number in and like the equations come out right, but don't tell them what it is. So in general, even PhD student, forget PhD student, I'm talking like when I publish my papers, I had that number at the top because when you publish physics, you, you know, you go to the basics in the first few sentences where you say, we utilize the vacuum density of 10 to the 93 grams per centimeter cubed to da 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 da. And like had like hate mail coming from physicists like you're talking to the director of CERN and going like, where did you take that number? That is so wrong. And I'm like, dude, here's the Wikipedia link. <laughs> Did you miss it? It's in every physics dictionary. It's called the Planck density. And so this is what happened. And, and so basically what I said is, you know, if subatomic particles are mini black holes, how is it that we miss that? And I realized, wait, we're not taking account of the vacuum density. So I calculated how much vacuum energy there is in a little volume of a little nuclei of a proton, like a, the nuclei of an atom, the proton. You know, I calculated the volume of a proton. Okay, remember how small the proton is relative to our scale? So the volume of a proton is 10 to the minus 39 centimeter cubed. So that's like a point with 39 zeros. Like it's, it's a very small volume, okay? And then I calculated how much Planck energy there is in there, how much Planck density there is in there. And so basically you put all the little Planck's beads inside the little proton and what you get, you get 10 to the 55 gram, the mass of the universe, <laughs> right there inside the proton. Showing that the mass of the universe is mostly proton, like, I mean, it's all protons. And so it's showing that like one proton has the information of all the other protons in the universe, in the vacuum fluctuation, in the information of the fluctuation inside one proton. It's like your radio set can tune to any radio station in the universe. If you had a perfect antenna, see what I'm saying? You're made out of these protons, <laughs> right? And you are the radio set. So if you are radio set and you're tapping into a set of information, you know, I can show you, and I don't know if I'll get to it, but that the brain and the nervous system is like an antenna oscillating in the structure of space-time. And if, you're, if your brain and your nervous system is the antenna, then what is the dial on the radio set that tunes the antenna? The dial is your state of emotion. Because we know that the state of emotion regularizes the oscillating system that the heart, the spinal fluids, the going up and down, the whole thing is regularized to where you're at in your state of emotion. And so actually that's how your antenna tunes to a certain channel or another channel. And, and that's really important for you guys to know. Okay, so. It's no judgment. I mean, we all blow a fuse and I'm really good at it. And we feel it, you know, we get kind of detuned and then we got to retune. And this is, this is really important. But basically, what I noticed, so I, I published this paper, The Schwarzschild Proton, because the Schwarzschild solution is a solution for black holes. So I basically was, you know, eluding 
to a black hole proton, I got a lot of tomatoes thrown at me. Oh my God, it was just awful. Because if you calculate, of course, there's all the energy of the universe in one proton in terms of vacuum fluctuation, and you calculate another little black hole, you know, proton, and you calculate how strongly those two black holes would be interacting with each other, it equals exactly the strong force, meaning the force we put in artificially to make the protons stick together inside the atom because they have an electrostatic charge that should repel them, like two magnets. And so when we discovered that, we added a force. We didn't think gravity was strong enough, so we added a force. We totally artificially added the strongest force in the universe. We called it the strong force. And we just didn't ever say where it came from. And what I was pointing out there is like, you guys missed it. Those things are little black holes and it's gravity, right? And when I calculated it, it's exact. And so like, I was like, that's not a coincidence. It's not approximately, it's exact. So I pointed that out, but then, you know, I got a lot of tomatoes thrown at me because they were saying, ah, he's saying the universe is inside a proton. What are you talking about? Like the proton would weigh as much as the universe and, you know, crazy. <laughs> but you see, first of all, mass and, and weight are not the same thing. Mass is energy. Weight is a relationship to a gravitational field. But that's another story. So a lot of those critics that were supposedly good physicists were like a little confused. But imagine that the mass of everything was like the mass of the universe. What you're experiencing is just the relative mass of these things, the relative relationship of these things. Do you see what I'm saying? Like we don't have like some scale that we're like weighing these things on. So they can be something completely, you know, much larger. But we would just make measurement of their relative relationship to our observation, not their ultimate state. You guys see what I mean? If you're just joining us or wondering what we're listening to, we're listening to Nassim Haramain here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. to come up with some better proof than that you know and i knew it was in there so i'm thinking okay i've solved like literally this equation proves the universe is one right that the universe is completely connected so it's remarkable like because you know all the philosophers saying it's all one and your neighbor you know new ager saying it's all one you know when you're having a bad day and it's like you know i hate my boss and it's like you're one with your boss <laughs> and you like feel worse, you know. <laughs> this actually was like a mathematical proof, like this is real, that this is the way it works. But it took me five years, I was losing my mind over this because I was like trying to figure out, okay, it's got to come out right to the mass of the proton. Not, you know, like the mass of the proton is 10 to the minus 24, it's very 
teeny, teeny, weeny mass. But I knew this teeny mass we measure is just our relationship to that thing. It's not its ultimate mass. So I was trying to figure out, okay, so that means I got to calculate the relationship of all the other protons in the universe to one proton. And by the time I'm done with my equation, it better give the mass of the proton. And I was like, good luck on that one. Right? Like, imagine trying to figure out an equation that does that, you know? But I'm kind of like that crazy kind of guy that's going to go for crazy ideas. And so I just went for it. And it took me five years, like literally five years of very little sleep because I was like continuously working on it, continuously trying to find a solution. And when I found the solution, it was really simple. But basically, I realized that if, um, so imagine all these little Planck's on the surface actually makes a surface. So basically saying, you know what, Einstein was a little confused because it's not smooth, it's granulate at the quantum level, meaning like if it's a tub of water, Einstein, you know, described like when you pull the plug, how the surface of the water curves towards and your rubber ducky starts orbiting the drain, right? That's what he described. He described the curve, but the water is made of little granulate of you know, atoms and molecules and stuff. And it's because they're all spinning together in that region that you get that curvature. The curvature is the effect, not the source, right? So I, I started to think, wait, maybe space-time is just the slew of Planck and they're, you know, spinning in organized matter in regions of space and we call that stuff, you know, like particles or black holes and so on. So I took a black hole and I calculated how many of these little plonks they would be on the surface. So this is a well-known black hole, like a Cygnus X1 was the first one found. And this 10 to the 79 plonk on the surface and each plonk represent the termination of a wormhole where a wormhole would like end. And each plonk is a, like a little bit of information, right? It's connecting to another part in space-time that's like one bit, another bit, another bit, right? And so I was thinking, well, what about the bits that are inside? So there's the inside bits, I calculated those, and I made a ratio between the outside and the inside, or between the inside is R and the outside is eta, and that gave me a dimensionless number, right? A ratio between the information that's on the surface, and I was thinking this, I was thinking maybe what we observe is just the interaction between the information inside and the information outside because there's more inside than outside so it's like a pressure and maybe that's what we think of energy as mass and so I calculated and then the ratio I multiplied by one Planck mass to get the mass or the energy of that ratio to see if it was the mass of the object and it outputted the exact mass of the black hole I was like whoa it comes out because it's like an exact solution to Einstein's equation, but in this case, without differential equation, without all this stuff, just simple geometry ratios of the fluctuations of space-time. It was like, whoa, and that's so why I call all the physicists I knew, like, is this known? Everybody must know this. And I, no, we've never seen this, you know. And so I was really excited because it was describing gravity in a completely different way. It was describing gravity as the result of quantum fluctuations in the vacuum structure. So now I had my link between quantum physics and gravity. It was coming together. So then I had to see, does that apply to an atom? So I put it on, I did the same thing for the proton. 
and I counted the numbers on top of the proton, I counted the numbers on the inside of the proton, and I multiplied it by the Planck mass, and it gave me the exact mass of the proton. It was within 0.0012 of the measured value in laboratory. And I was just elated because consider that 10 to the 60th, this is the mass of the universe inside there. I'm using the mass of the universe in my equation and I'm nailing a mass that's 10 to the minus 24 grams. And so I'm blown away. And so I was like on the cloud for like weeks. And eventually I realized that the radius of the proton is not actually measured very accurately because we can measure the mass very, very accurately. I was wondering why my equation was exact for black holes in the universe, but was off by 0.0012 for the proton. And I realized, well, maybe the radius is not right. So I checked that out. Oh, the radius, they're having a hard time measuring it. So what I did is I reversed my equation so that it gave me a radius instead of a mass. And I predicted what exactly the radius of the proton should be based on my holographic mass solution. You guys are following that? Yeah. And uh, it was a gutsy move because I, the people that were writing the paper with me like, oh, my God, you know, this could be really bad. And I didn't think that the radius of the proton would be measured more accurately. I mean, it could have been 10 years, could have been, I could have never seen it in my lifetime, but I just needed to put it in there. And it turns out that there was an experiment ongoing that was happening as I published that was trying to measure the proton more precisely. They published their result a month and a half after I sent my paper to the Library of Congress, and the new result was 4% smaller than what was expected by the standard model, but it was within 0.00036 of my predicted value in my paper. This value is actually within the margin of error of the experiment, so my value in my paper might be exact, and the experiments are finally getting closer and closer. And basically, what I'm saying here is that Every point is entangled with every other point in the universe. I'm running out of time. But basically, what we observe from our frame of reference is a very partial amount of the information that's present. A very, very teeny, beady little thing of what actually is happening. The thing is actually connected. Every atom, every proton, every singularity, and, and we just found a really amazing solution for the electron. It just came out so clean. We found it last week. So this is my coming out with it. And it's 99, let's see, it's 99.99997% accurate within 0 0.000021 of the mass of proton. And it's incredible. So now we have charge. Now we have the source of charge coming out of the Planck field. So it's very significant. Like this is a direct link to like gravity control, to like energy production, like mass production, like making matter out of space, you know. And so it really is coming along. But what I wanted to tell you is that this interconnectivity of the wormhole, because that so now you have one proton connected to 
10 to the 40th proton, which the 10 to the 40th proton are connected to another 10 to the 40th proton, which is, gives the 10 to the 80th proton in our universe. These things are like talking to each other continuously. The whole universe is updating itself across the whole natural work instantaneously every plonk second, which is like super short, right? <laughs> and so you are talking to the universe and what you call your consciousness is actually the scale movement of information through the proton into the electron into all the cellular structure interaction that's going on in your body to eventually your whole body being made of a hundred trillion cell in a perfect coordination you know like people say oh you know we're doing studies to figure out if consciousness influence matter right like there's all these studies so now we're starting in this paper we're starting to identify the mechanism under which the information flows from the proton into the electron into the cells through the microtubule structures of the cell which is these little micro wormhole tubes but those ones are at the biological scale so those one we actually can see and there are these little rolled little microtubule and they have like water in there and the water is spinning like highly charged and it's like the whole thing is like buzzing they're oscillating at high frequency and they're like and they're like computing the whole thing when cell divides it's the microtubules that go and then divides the cell and, and all this stuff that this whole thing the skeleton of the cell is is all these microtubules that are actually like the wormhole network of the biological entity this is your antenna vibrating in the structure of space and water molecule is the key element you know, all biology emerged from water for a reason, is the key element that produced the link, the hydrogen link, to the vacuum energy, to the plant field. And the information moves through that into your bio-oscillating crystal that you are. Like, you're like an incredible antenna. Like, and the juice is coming through. And guess what? You can tune that up. Like, you, you can tune the dial on that and, like, get the antenna to like, you know, home in to a set of information and like download some serious stuff. <laughs> and, and so basically what's actually happening in the brain and the ventricula and the various structure of the brain, especially in the middle there, is like a waveguide for the way the water is circulating and how the pump so you can imagine this is your antenna like it's pumping the heart is pumping the fluids are going up and down your spine your skull is expanding and contracting and it's like the whole thing is like woo, 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 woo. and and as you get smaller and smaller in the scale woo, 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 and then it's like microtubule at the very end like woo, you know it's a very musical thing and you can tune that by your state of emotion, by bringing your senses inwards, by, by cutting off like all the disturbance from the outside and like tuning into that 
field of information tuning into that rhythm of your body and then bringing it into alignment and when you do like then information can and certain chemicals can create some of these tuning and ancient people knew that and so they, they had these moments of initiation where they would do that because it's a natural state you don't need the chemical to do that you can do it on your own and when you do it it's remarkable and you know when the masters talk about and the state of enlightenment they talk about a state in which they have answer to all questions why because all the information is in there in every one of your protons, you can know what's going on on the other side of the universe. And guess what? When you understand these mechanics, you can actually make a vehicle to go to the other side of the universe and check it out. It's doable. Yep. So basically, this antenna you're made of is actually able to transfer itself through space, through electromagnetic field, so you can actually influence others. And that's the last thing I wanted to tell you is that you can not only tune your antenna, you can help tune the antennas of others. You can, you know, influence the field because, you know, the sympathetic resonance that occurs. So you can create a sympathetic resonance link to another person and then tune their field and modify their state of being, you know, or, or harmonize with them in certain states, you know, like sexual activities will tend to do that and you know other things but this is an important thing to know because if you know then you can actively be an incredible engineer of the vacuum and modify yourself and others and be a really big agent of change for the planet at this time. That was Nassim Haramein, one of those rare people who has been studying the nature of the universe since he was a child and who really understands quantum physics and relativity as very, very few people do. Next, we're going to hear something in a somewhat similar vein from Rupert Spira, who's a teacher of Advaita Vedanta, or non-duality. So, my question is, does magic exist? Well, before I can answer that question, we have to agree what we mean by magic or a miracle. Let's say that magic or a miracle is something that happens that doesn't obey what we consider to be the laws of nature. Can we agree provisionally? Yes. So the laws of what we consider to be the laws of nature now are considered to be laws that that govern the material universe. Laws that govern stuff called matter, out of which we believe that mind and consciousness come. So, the fact that when I drop this, it falls to the table, it is not magic. 
it, it's to be expected and can be explained by the laws of physics yes. as we know them, the laws of matter. However, if you were to think, for instance, of the image of a friend of yours, your best friend from kindergarten, which was, what, ten years ago or so? Eight years ago. Eight years ago. Mm. <laughs> your best friend in kindergarten, and that you've since lost touch with. Just imagine, I don't know that you have, okay. but just imagine that you had a close friend. You went your separate ways, and you hadn't seen or thought of him or her since then. And the image of their face came to you in this meeting. And then after this meeting, you went back to your design project, but you noticed you had an email. You checked your emails, and it was from your friend. Now, under the laws of physics, that is just a coincidence. A one in a billion chance of it happening. If that only happened to very few people once or twice in their life, we could say that was just a coincidence. But that kind of thing happens to everybody fairly regularly. So it's not something that can be explained under the current laws of physics. It's outside the current laws of physics. And anything outside the laws of physics, we have to say it's just a coincidence. There's no real causal, there's no real connection between the image appearing in your mind and your friend writing to you. In other words, when the image of you, of your friend was appearing in your mind, you were appearing as an image in your friend's mind. Somehow your two minds are still connected. Under the laws of physics, that shouldn't be able to happen. Mm. Especially when there's so much time and distance between you. Not surprising that you might think of your mother or father there around you all the time, but it is surprising that you happen to have had the image of your friend who you haven't seen for eight years. So is that magic? Is it a miracle? Yes, if we consider the laws of physics to be the real laws that govern reality, then yes, it's a miracle. It's magic. But if we take a broader view of reality, if we think that reality is a single indivisible whole and that everything exists in that reality partakes of that reality, then it is not so surprising that minds can be connected across time and space in just the same way that two objects can be connected. So what appears to be magic or a miracle from the point of view of materialism would not be considered magic or miraculous from the point of view of the consciousness only model. From that point of view, we would either have to say nothing is a miracle or we would have to say everything is a miracle. They both amount to the same. So it's like a little spark of awareness in the finite world. Like yes, exactly. You, you could say that, that what we consider to be magic or a miracle, that's a very nice way of saying it. It's an appearance of the infinite in the finite. It's a hint of the infinite in the finite. Yes, absolutely. And what about the magic, like making magic and spells magic? And is that like connecting to consciousness? Do you mean when you say uh, making magic, someone that has the ability to uh, bend a piece of metal at a distance? Is that, is that kind of thing? I mean, that's highly unlikely, but something like that, yes. <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> well, you say it's highly unlikely, but have you ever had the experience of getting very excited 
and then feeling a pounding in your chest. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, you got excited. Excitement is a mental experience, yes? But that mental experience had an effect on your physical chest. So you had a mental experience of excitement, and as a result, something in your body changed. Yeah? Now the stuff that this lamp is made out of, the molecules that this light is made out of, are almost identical to the molecules that your body is made out of. So if the experience of excitement, if a mental experience can have an effect on your body, why couldn't it have an effect on the world? After all, your body is a product of the world. It's made of the same stuff. So if excitement can change your body, why can't it change the world? Wow. <laughs> That's true. After all, your body is like a tree. Our bodies have literally grown out of the world. Yes? Yes. A mental image can change our body. Why can't our mental image an idea in our mind, change the world, which is, after all, our body is simply an extension of the world. Just because our hand may not be connected to the world, doesn't mean that they are not... A, a bird in the sky is not connected to the earth, but it's part of the same world. Why couldn't a thought in your mind affect a bird in the sky, or, or a tree, or the lamp? After all, it can affect the molecules of your body, which are the same as the molecules in the world. They are the mo Where do you think the molecules in your body came from? The world. They came from the world, from the food you eat, from the air you breathe. What difference does it make whether a molecule is in your body or in the world? Take the molecules in the food that you eat. First of all, they live in the world. We call it the world. Then you eat them. They become your body. And then... A few days later, they've left your body again. You call them the world again. Well, were they your body or were they the world? Those molecules, who do they belong to? It's the same system. But how come it never happens that it, our mind affects other things? How do you know that it doesn't? Well, I'm sure it does, but it's never happened to me or, or anybody I know, really. But... It has? <laughs> Is it because we limit ourselves? But just because you can't see the effect that your mind has on the world doesn't mean that it's not having an effect just because you can't see it and measure it. After all, all kinds of things happen in your mind that have an effect on your body that you can't register or measure. To give an example, there are lots of things that take place in your mind or in your feelings that trigger the millions of chemical reactions in your body. You can't see any of them, or measure any of them. You see, we tend to think of our bodies as isolated systems, separate from the world. Mm. We think that the self and the world as two distinct entities, but our, our bodies are just extensions of the world. Imagine if the world could think. Would it think that trees were part of itself and human beings were not part of itself? No. It's only human beings that think that they are not part of the world, that their bodies are not continuous with the body of the world. It's only human beings, it's only the mind that thinks my body is separate, it's an isolated system. But what happens when your body stops breathing or stops eating? In other words, stops interacting with the world and with the environment? 
it dies and then... You'll be dead in a minute if you stop breathing. Mm. So our bodies in the world, it's one system. It's literally the same system and therefore if a thought can affect your body, as you know it can, or a feeling or an emotion can affect your body, it is affecting the single system of which your body is a part. But your body is not separate from that system. It feels as if the skin is a layer that seals the body in. But actually, even from a physical point of view, if you examine the skin, it's like an old cobweb. It's mostly empty space, mostly porous. That the so-called boundary between the body and the world, even from a physical point of view, is a porous boundary. What's on the inside of the boundary and what's on the outside are continually exchanging substances or information. In just the same way that our minds, the separate self thinks that its mind is a, a capsule inside which thoughts and feelings take place and that all other thoughts and feelings are outside and separate from it. But our minds are porous. The container of the mind is even more porous than the container of the body. That's why it's possible to exchange ideas and informations and communicate feelings to one another. There's one system, in, e even from the point of view of physics, there's only one system in the universe. And all the apparent objects and minds and whatever else there is in that universe, their boundaries are porous. Everything is interconnected with everything else. From the point of view of conventional thinking today, from the point of view of material science today, the universe, the stuff, the reality, the essential stuff the universe is made out of is, is stuff called matter. And everything is considered to be built up. First was the Big Bang and the particles condensed and eventually formed atoms and molecules and eventually formed cells and eventually formed living beings and then eventually at some very late stage mind or consciousness was created out of matter. That's how people think, most people think today. From what we consider here is that it's not matter that is the essential reality of the universe, it is consciousness so that the universe is an appearance in consciousness ultimately made of consciousness it only looks like matter when it's viewed from the perspective of a finite mind so yes it's true that it looks like matter it looks like a collection of objects but in fact it's all ultimately made out of consciousness but if you think about it if the materialists were really consistent with their philosophy they would have to admit that what they call mind, consciousness, comes out of or is derived from matter. And therefore whatever consciousness is must be inherent in matter. If consciousness comes out of matter, then consciousness must have lived in potential within matter to begin with. Matter, as it were, gave birth to consciousness. Then consciousness must be innate in matter. In other words, the ultimate reality of consciousness must be the ultimate reality of matter. So whichever model you take, whether you're strictly you take the matter-only model and you think consciousness comes out of matter, or you take the consciousness-only model and you think matter comes out of consciousness, in both cases there can only be one shared reality between these two apparent subjects. And to be honest, it doesn't matter whether you call it matter or consciousness. What's important is that it is a single whole. And being a single whole, having a single shared reality, 
there can be nothing in that reality other than itself. So it has no divisions in it. It's not made of two things. It's made of one thing. Therefore, everything partakes of that reality. And therefore, that reality has no limitations. It, it is infinite. So the fact that there is a connection between what happens, for instance, you, you, you drink a glass of wine and your <laughs> images... <laughs> he's French. He's French. He, he's French. <laughs> half French. You drink a glass of wine, you, all you need is a sip, and your thoughts start going fuzzy. That's matter having effect on mind. The next day, your parents tell you you're going to the Caribbean for your winter holiday, and there's a feeling of excitement. You feel this bubble in your chest. That's an example of mind having an effect on matter. So we experience both. We experience matter having an effect on mind, and we experience mind having an effect on matter. How come? Because they're both part of the same system. Mind and matter are not two different things. They're two different ways of looking at the same thing. So it works both ways. Mm -hmm. But to go back to your original question, Alexander, is there magic? Is magic real or are there miracles? Implicit in your question is that most of what happens is not a miracle. But there are some extraordinary things that happen that are miracles or, or are magic. But consider this. Before anything appeared, before anything at all appeared, there must have been an absence of that thing, of those things. There must have been no things. So whatever appears, whatever things appear, must appear out of something which is not itself a thing. Now that's the case whether you subscribe to the matter model or the consciousness model. Before the Big Bang there was no thing. The material universe apparently came out of that state of nothingness. So this is your homework. How is it possible for something to come out of nothing? That is the real miracle. The real miracle is not the fact that some people with special powers can bend a spoon at a distance or that your friend contacts you who you haven't seen for ages. The real miracle is that there is anything at all in experience. Mm. That is the real miracle. How is that possible? was Rupert Spira, a teacher of Advaita Vedanta, or the science and practice of non-duality. it for this magical mystery tour thank you so much for listening and until next time have a wonderful week <laughs> <laughs>